Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Full Circle Podcast. I'm your host, Gillian McMichael. If there's one topic that people avoid talking about, it's death. Death is a natural part of life, yet many of us have learned to fear death or to avoid asking too many questions around the sensitive topic. And that's why in today's episode, I wanted to delve into the end of life process and understand how love can be the focal point of death. Love is a topic we're all comfortable with, so I'm curious how a painful event, like the passing of a loved one, can be remembered with love and fondness, rather than grief and sorrow. If you're interested in the quality of death for yourself or a loved one, then you owe it to yourself to tune in. My guest today is Janie Rakow, the co-founder of Farewell Doula and the International End of Life Doula Association. As an end-of-life doula, she journeys with the dying person and their loved ones through the end-of-life process. She fills the gaps in hospice care and helps create legacies, memories, conduct rituals, plan vigils and create guided visualisations. Janie has been a hospice volunteer since 2001, providing emotional and spiritual support to patients and their loved ones through the end-of-life process. Janie's work as a doula is complemented by her years of experience as a certified emotional freedom technique practitioner known as EFT, a hypnotherapist and a Reiki level 2 practitioner. To date, Janie has worked with hundreds of patients and their loved ones as they journey through their terminal diagnosis. Janie and I have had a fascinating conversation about the final stages of life and how that process can be as powerful and full of love as possible. I do hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi Janie, welcome to the conversation. How are you? I'm good, so good to see you. You too and thank you so much for agreeing to have our conversation today. I've been really looking forward to chatting to you. What might be quite interesting is for us just to kind of talk a little bit more around the work that you do and your kind of work as an end-of-life doula. Yes, so as you said I'm an end-of-life doula. Not everybody knows what that is But basically, when someone gets a terminal diagnosis, there's a lot of fear and anxiety that wells up and surrounds them and everyone who loves them all around. So we as end-of-life doulas guide and kind of navigate through the journey with this person and their loved ones till they die and actually even after they die processing grief with their loved ones. So end-of-life doulas have um, a lot of roles. We work both with the person who is dying and we work with their family or loved ones. You know, there's just so much fear when someone gets that diagnosis and we come in and really calm everything down and educate about the dying process. Just thinking about that, it feels like it's very important work because death is quite a scary thing and we don't necessarily always talk openly about what's happening and how we're feeling through these processes. No, people people are afraid to talk about it. Some people feel, oh, if I talk about it, it's going to happen, you know, or they don't want to talk about it because they want their loved one, this person who has a diagnosis, to keep having hope. 
and not to think about the fact that they might be dying, which is fine. You know, we talk about these two tracks that you can be on at the same time. One is I'm going to get better. I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to cure myself if possible. But then we look at the other track. What if? What if there is this terminal diagnosis and you won't get better? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the what if so that you can make um, your your, um, ideas known about what you want during those last months and weeks and days. And if we don't talk about it, there's so much unknown. And then everyone's left guessing. What would they have wanted? Would they have wanted that uh, respirator? Would they have wanted uh, that medication? Would they wanted to have been kept alive? And so by just talking about it, it's such a relief, but people are so afraid. And I would imagine some of those conversations are very emotional because obviously you potentially losing a loved one and that must be very difficult to have those conversations at that time. They are difficult. But what I tell people is, yes, these conversations are difficult. Are people going to be upset? Yes. Are they going to be crying? Yes. But getting those emotions out is also so freeing for people and people who are dying they know they're dying. This is not a surprise. This is not an unknown. But when it is pushed upon them, which I've seen very often, let's not talk about it. You're going to get better. Don't even go there. It really is difficult for the person that is dying because then they have no one to talk to. They're up at night with all these fears going through their mind. What's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my husband? You know, how's my sister going to survive after I die? And if they can't talk about it with anyone, it just is a burden to them until they take their last breath. Yeah, I can imagine. And so what kind of sparked your curiosity into kind of getting into this line of work in the first instance? Yeah, so it's a long story. I I never heard of an end-of-life doula. I um I grew up the youngest of three children. My dad was an accountant, a CPA. And I think he had high hopes for one of his children to follow in his footsteps. And since my brother and my sister, who are both older than me, did not, I kind of felt like, okay, it's up to me to do that. So I graduated from college with an accounting degree. Off I went to this huge accounting firm. And I'd say within six months, I realized, oh, what did I get myself into? I do not like this. So I actually did that work for two years. Um, My dad then said, transfer into the tax department. It's so much more interesting. I did that and it was a little bit better, but not by much. Along, Along that time, I had a best friend that was actually killed in New York City. She was hit by a garbage truck. And um, I was 26, and that was the first person in my life, um, other than a grandparent, that really affected me and sent me on a journey about death and dying. And I think I read every book I could get a hold of about the meaning of life, what happens when someone dies. Um, I was really interested in that. But, you know, still working in the accounting field. So fast forward, I got married, I had kids. I started to work um, in a boutique law firm, actually doing tax and estate planning, so planning for people's assets when they died. Again, fast forward, uh, I wake up one morning, and it is September 11th, 2001, 
and off I go to the gym to work out and it's about quarter to nine, I'm running on the treadmill and the TVs are in front of me and I see a plane going into one of the World Trade Centers. And my first thought was, oh my God, this pilot must have had a heart attack, what happened? 10 minutes later, we see another plane go into the other tower and all hell breaks loose. I live in New Jersey, 30 minutes outside of New York. I had a lot of friends who worked in the city and who worked downtown. And so that day changed my life. It was a wake up call for me to say, what are you doing with your life? Anything can change in an instant. Um, in a job that I'm not happy with, trying to fulfill my father's dream, not my dream. And at that time, I was reading a book about hospice, and it really spoke to me. So after a couple of weeks, I thought about it, and I said to my husband, I'm going to quit work, and I'm going to go volunteer at our local hospice. And I did. I, I left my job. I figured I could always go back if I had to. And I volunteered at a hospice, and I felt like I wanted to serve. At that point in my life, I just wanted to give back if I could. And I loved the work. I really liked it. A couple of years later, when I was at this hospice, there was a manager of social services at the hospice. His name was Henry Fersco Weiss. He developed this end-of-life doula program. This was probably in maybe 2007, and this concept was really new. Not many people knew about it, and he developed a program, and he taught us volunteers at his hospice how to do this work. And once we started working with people that were dying and developing this end-of-life doula relationship with the person and the family, it was incredible work. And people started to say to us, why doesn't this exist anywhere else? You're, you're in this hospice in New Jersey, but I have an aunt in Florida who could use an end-of-life doula and a cousin in California. So about a year later, Henry Fresco Weiss and I um, left the hospice and we started our nonprofit called International End-of-Life Doula Association, or ANELDA for short. And we hired more people and we started training all over the country and really all over the world, people who wanted to become end-of-life doulas. And these were people from all walks of life. You didn't have to have um, a medical background. You could want to do this in a hospice situation. You could do this privately. You could do it for your family and friends. And so we did that. I was there for about six years, and we developed this program, and it got bigger and bigger, and we trained thousands of doulas. About a year and a half ago, I decided to retire from Anelda, and I started uh, my own company called Farewell Doula. And I just wanted to go back to working one-on-one -on -one with clients. And so that's how I got into this. It's crazy. I never thought I would be taking this path, but I did, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds very much just like you said when that you were kind of called to serve in many ways, obviously through the experience of 9-11, but also that kind of interest in reading around death and transitioning and so forth. And it feels very strongly that there seems to have been maybe the path that maybe you was meant to 
to walk yes. on. Would that be right to say, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I just feel so lucky to, you know, people say, oh, how do you find your passion? You know, I, I don't know. I think you you find something that you're interested in and then see where it leads. And I don't know if I got lucky or what, but it really just worked out perfectly because this is what I love to do is to help people journey towards their end of life mm -hmm. and to try to enrich it and bring love and caring to everybody involved to make it a better experience. Yeah, I can really hear that. And I think listening to that, I'm based here in the UK and and we have end of life doulas. We have obviously when people are having babies, doulas, you know, for, for bringing maternity doulas and things like that as well, but it's not really big. And so it sounds like this has kind of grown in the US quite exponentially actually in terms of people's interest and, and people calling out for needing this yeah. and seeing the, the benefits yeah. of it. Yes, we in the last several years have really trained thousands of people and it always surprises me that there's so many people who still want to sign up for these trainings and learn how to do the work. And again, it, it's just like an, an inner calling or an inner need to help somebody else. And this isn't new, right? Maybe a hundred years ago, this is what everybody did. Thousands of years ago, you helped your loved one die. And I think in the early 1900s, for many reasons, hospitals, institutions came about, every, death became very medicalized. And so people were pushed away from the bedside. Oh, you don't need to come, or somebody's in a hospital, or somebody's in a nursing home, or assisted living. And so the medical society has really surrounded the person who is dying, which in some ways is good but really pushed out the caregivers and the loved ones to be present. And because of that, because I think people are so far removed in our society from death, it's created a fear and an anxiety because, you know, we don't want to see that. What is that going to look like? What are those breathing sounds? Why is that per person, you know, turning all kinds of colors when they're dying? It's all normal. It's all yeah. natural. And we just have to educate people about yeah what it looks like. And it's interesting because that was going to be one of my questions actually was that sense of the typical, it sounds awful, but the typical kind of dying experience in a traditional mm -hmm. medical system versus something that you're offering and what you've been doing for years. And it does sound very, very different. Can you share a little bit more about that kind of traditional experience versus again, what else you might do to help somebody understand around the colors and what's happening to the person at the time? Yeah. So as a doula, you know, there's so many um, questions that we'll ask when we first get a patient or a client, you know, where do they want to die? Do you want to die at home? Do you want to die in a facility? And that could be very, very different. Um, I have a story of a woman who she had breast cancer and she was living in a townhouse with her husband. She had two grown boys in their 20s who lived about 30 miles away. And um, she had her beloved dog who was 14 and probably dying soon. And when we first talked about it, she said, Janie, I want to die at home. I want to be here in my house, you know, probably not in my bedroom, but somewhere in the house because this is where I want to die. She said, but I can't. And I said, why? And she said, because I know my husband would not be able to handle it. So I need to be in a facility. I would like nothing more than to be here with my dog lying on my lap who's old, 
but and my kids surrounding me, but I know my husband would be terrified and it just wouldn't be possible. So when she was dying, she did put herself in um, a gorgeous facility that and everyone came and visited and they actually brought her dog too. And she was right. Her husband could not handle it. He had to leave the room very often. And so these are the things that we discuss. You know, where do you want to die? Who do you want to surround you? Do you want your children, your um, spouse, some friends? Do you want it to be a celebration? Um, I have, I had one patient whose best friend was going to give her eulogy and her friend came in and actually read the eulogy to her before she died. So, and that's how it should be. We should be saying all these wonderful intimate things about this person that we love before they die so they can know and hear it. And so we as doulas can really um, open up everyone's eyes to all these beautiful things that can be done as well as the business part. Do you have an advanced directive? Have you made funeral arrangements? You know, what don't you want when you're dying? You know, sometimes it's easier to talk about the medical system and what you don't want rather than saying, what do you want? Because then people are like, I don't know. I don't know what I want. So, okay, let's start with what don't you want? So um, we can create memories, something called a legacy project that lives on after the person has died. And I feel like all of these things were naturally done you know, hundreds of years ago, but we've come so far away from that. So now I think everyone is craving to return to that intimacy during yeah. death. And I think just what struck me there when you were speaking was this sense of telling people how you feel rather than doing it at the funeral when you'll read a few words or read a eulogy yeah. or something like that and talk about them afterwards. And I think that feels quite an important part of this process especially from that part of, you know, you are losing a loved one yes, and that's going to leave a big gap potentially in one's life. And so therefore it feels that it's more of a celebration of life and mm -hmm. connection and love and intimacy rather than doing it afterwards. Absolutely. And some people can't wrap their head around the fact that it's a celebration. You know, what do you mean it's a celebration? You know, my mother's dying. This is not a celebration. And I understand that. But just tell your mom how you feel about her, you know, how what she's done for you in your life growing up, what she means to you. And we also tell people when someone's dying, hearing is the last sense to go. So it's pretty much been proven that people can hear until they take their last breath. So we will say, you know, let's sit around. Let's tell stories about this person's life and who they were, um, they can still hear you and you can tell them how much you love them, how much you're going to miss them. You can climb into bed and hold them. You know, people are afraid of that because often when someone's dying, they're, they're very frail and thin. And there's really no reason, unless there's a medical reason, that you can't climb into bed with your loved one, wrap your arms around them and whisper in their ear, um, how much you care about them and how much you're going to miss them really until they take their last breath. And it's so beautiful when that happens, but people have to be given kind of permission and knowledge to do that. Yeah. And I suppose that's where your role and other doulas come into this, because I think 
from my experience, see my grandparents and so forth kind of pass away and things and some in hospital, some not. You know, there is a coldness, I think, around being in a medical institution yeah. because it is very practical. It's very rational. It's mechanical in many ways, all the good work that they do. But it just misses out, I think, sometimes that human side Absolutely. and that deeper connection that I think because loss is such a big thing. And I think if you don't talk about it, then you're, you are left with lots of questions and those questions are left unanswered. And then you make assumptions and you make up the stuff rather yes. than actually being able to have those open, honest, transparent conversations that I think are so well needed. And the grief is a little bit easier. Once yeah. you've said everything you've needed to say, and once you've kind of unburdened yourself and them, really the grief process is is definitely easier. It doesn't go away. It still hurts. It's still painful, but it's easier. And I just wanted to touch on, you said, you know, when somebody dies in a hospital or anywhere else in a medical environment, we can make that as homey as possible for that person. You know, we tell people, bring in pictures, bring in pictures of when this person was young, their grandchildren, their children, cards, letters, you know, let's put them on the walls surrounding them so they can see their loved ones. You can do that in the hospitals. You can bring in a favorite quilt or blanket or a robe or a piece of clothing from somebody else who has died before them that they want to touch or hold. You know, you could uh, bring in music, something that really speaks to mm -hmm. them creating a playlist of music that they want to hear surrounding them when they're dying. So much you can do even in that yeah. medicalized Absolutely. environment. Yeah. And I think though, what I'm hearing from you though, is that actually it's the conversation around that stuff is the important yes. thing. And yes. it feels from what you're saying is regardless of where the individual is, you can make it as meaningful and significant and as intimate as it possibly can for anybody really. And tailored to that person. You know, when we talk about music, everybody's different. Like I know my brother loves like the Grateful Dead. He would want to hear that. And I would <laughs> be like running out of the room if I heard that. So, you know, it's very specific. Yeah. We try to get to know this person, who they are. Tell me everything about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What are your likes, your dislikes? Even aromas, like, you know, there was this hospice center in San Francisco called Zen Hospice, and they used to bake chocolate chip co cookies in the hospice every day. These people could not necessarily eat those cookies, but the smell of that would bring people happiness and thinking back on their childhood and baking. And so there's so much that we can incorporate into somebody's life to make it um, a really meaningful yeah. death. Yeah. And so can I ask you, obviously, you know, children, teenagers lose parents, grandparents and so forth. And do you support younger people as well as adults? Yeah. Yes, we do. I have a patient right now who has two children. He's dying and um, their children are 10 and 8. And it's been kind of a long progression and he's dying in the house. And so it was actually, I think, really helpful for the children to watch the progression because it normalized that for him, for them that dad you know was once okay but now he is slowly declining and so um we'll talk about it with the kids 
will encourage them to be part of other groups of children their own age who um, there's lots of Zoom now calls with children that can relate to other kids who are also going through what they're going through. And then also to encourage the family to get the support of a grief counselor or somebody who's really trained to work with children because they process things differently, they see things differently. But I encourage people to talk about death and dying like it's a natural part of life. People are going to be born and people are going to die. And so the more we normalize that and don't make it this big hidden secret or um, not talk about it at all, the easier it is for people to process the death mm -hmm. and be more comfortable with it. And that includes children. I'm just reflecting now as you're speaking that, you know, I can't remember any time in my childhood growing up at school or anything like that. Anybody really apart from obviously when grandparents passed away, did we actually really ever speak about death? I'm sure that's the same across the whole kind of world. And I wondered what your perspective is on that. I mean, obviously you've just said there that you think it should be something that should be normalized. But I mean, even from an educational perspective, yeah, what's yeah. your thoughts on that? It would be so nice, but I, I feel like people don't know how to even broach that subject or talk about it. You know, think about even in our lives when someone dies unexpectedly, you know, so many people say, I don't know what to say. Do I bring it up? Do I not bring it up? Especially when somebody loses a child, right? So, so difficult. And I'll hear from people that they'll say, why doesn't anybody ask me about my child? This could be two years later. It's like it never happened. They didn't exist. And all people want is to really talk about you know, who they lost and their loved ones. So bringing it into education or schools would be fabulous, but I think we're not there yet. We're still at the grassroots movement of just getting people to normalize it and again, talk about it. So um, hopefully one day it will be much more widespread and not such a scary or taboo subject. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same here in the UK. And I think there's a lot of work that we have to do to normalize mm. it, but also to, you know, because we talk about obviously having babies and dealing with birth, but we don't yeah. deal with the with the, the end of life cycle, I suppose. And as you said, it is a, it's a natural part of everything that we experience in our lives. We're born and we die. But yeah, we don't talk about it. So I think there's definitely work that needs to be done there. So obviously you've set up Farewell Doula and you're doing that level of work. But what's your vision now for yourself in terms of the work that you do and how you want to be in that work moving forward? So yeah, I just love this work. And right now I've got a really good balance, you know, with having my clients and then having my uh, free time after working for so, so many years. So I've kind of reinvented that, you know. Um, so I I'm really open. I kind of just say to the universe, take me where you will because um, I'm open to doing this work and so much more seems to be coming in. Um, I'll just touch on this briefly. In, in the United States, medical aid in dying has become legal in 11 states. That means that in our country, you can take, um, it's not a pill, it's actual uh, a compounded uh, powder mixed with liquid. When you're terminal, um, you can take that, drink that down, self-ingest it to die. Um, there's all sorts of rules and hoops you have to go through, but that has opened up in my state in New Jersey. And so 
people have reached out to me, doctors have reached out to me to facilitate and help people through that process who don't know how to do it. And I've you know, gotten on a couple of boards. One is a national board. One is a board in New Jersey. And so all these things I, I never even thought I would be doing have suddenly opened up. So as I said, I'm, I'm open to wherever this leads. And I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And it feels from that work with the medical aid in dying, so the maid, it feels like that is moving into a different space, isn't it, of choice, I suppose, around how one might want to end their life under the right circumstances. Under the right circumstances. Again, there's very strict rules as to who can do it, but it's legal in 11 states right now. And there are bills in many, many more states in the United States to legalize it. So I do see it becoming legal in many, many more states. And I think the UK also has a bill presently that they're trying to legalize it there too. So um, a lot of countries already have it. And so, yeah, I, I think just giving people a choice. You know, you look at somebody who has a really debilitating disease like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Eventually, they can't move anything in their body. They can't speak Maybe they can blink their eyes, yes or no. That is so hard to watch somebody die from something like that. And so um, ethically, morally, I know people have problems with taking a medication to hasten death. But when you have a family member or a loved one that is going through such a horrible death, it's really a relief for them to know that they have a choice. Mm -hmm. They don't have to do it, but they have a choice. So it feels to me like you've experienced so many things um, through your process of transitioning into the work that you do as an end-of-life doula. And I'm curious around those big lessons that you've learned, two things really, maybe about yourself as an end-of-life doula and the work that you do, and then about the dying process. If Could you share some of those? Yeah. So for myself, it's really taught me to be much more conscious of being present in your life day to day, because there's so many instances where we get a diagnosis out of nowhere or somebody dies that, you know, in a terrible accident that wasn't expected. So do the things, say the things right now, because we never know how much time any of us have. And so constantly working with people who are dying young and old, um, I think in my life, I try to remember just to be thankful have gratitude and be present for what I do have and how lucky I am that I'm healthy because it's really not fun when you're not healthy and you're really sick. So that's for me personally. Um, The dying process. So what I've seen with people is that in our society now, we're very lucky with hospice. We can most of the time, not all the time, uh, give somebody an environment that is not pain, no pain. So with all the drugs and we've come so far, most people can be um, somewhat pain-free as they're going through the dying process. So to me, it's no longer scary. Um, I've witnessed so many people seeing people from the other side or talking to people who they say are in the room that I can't see that are greeting them. And it seems to me, other than the pain part, they're comforted. And when they died, they're peaceful. 
Um, and it, it's no longer scary for me. Um, I think the pain process may be scary and getting to that point, but the actual dying process, when somebody is dying, it really is very peaceful. If you can understand the signs and symptoms and understand the breathing, uh, the rasping sounds, maybe the discoloration of the face, that's all normal. Our body is designed to die. We know how to die. And if you take that out of it, people are not grimacing. They're not groaning. It really is a peaceful process. So I think, you know, the dying process, if people just understand that normally, unless it's a violent death, I'm talking about, you know, more terminal illness, mm -hmm. it's, it's really um, generally a peaceful process. And in terms of kind of advice or guidance for others, so obviously this is something that will touch all of us within our lives at some point, but for those that maybe are going through it now, what advice would you share with them that might be helpful? If you're going through it now, try to talk about the process. And if you have a hard time talking to your loved ones because they don't want to hear it or they want you to stay positive, you know, reach out to an end-of-life doula. You can Google them. There are directories on website, and Nelda has, if you're in the United States, or even if you're not actually, has um, a directory of doulas, an organization called NEDA, N-E-D-A, has a directory of doulas. You can ask your hospice. You can work with a social worker at your hospice. You know, try to really have those conversations and talk to your loved ones about how you're feeling and try to make sure that you have everything in order because it's a gift you're giving to the people who are here after you're gone is for them to know your wishes and also for you to have all of the financial aspects in order once you're not here anymore. And it feels, um, as you've described some of the examples that you've given that actually that communication i've talked about this before but that communication is very important and that transparency mm -hmm. feels very important but it also feels that actually if you were to have those conversations then it could be a very loving experience yes and very loving very healing um, yeah. i do want to have a caveat that not everybody has a loved one that's dying that Maybe they want to talk about things, you know, yeah. whether something happened in their childhood that is not healthy to go there. But again, to even, you know, write a letter, you could, you could burn it, you could put it away, you know, just get yeah. those feelings out yeah. um, if possible. And it really does help in the grieving process afterwards. Yeah. Makes a yeah, big difference. I can hear that. Yeah, thank you. And for anybody who has not even considered thinking about passing on, whenever we do, do you have any words of advice for those people? Yeah, I would say think about it. Like it doesn't have to happen now, but it was interesting. I was talking to my daughter who's 28, and I had just unfortunately been to a memorial for a girl who had died who was 29. And having the conversation with my daughter, I was telling her how sad it was and what happened, what they did. My daughter said, well, I wouldn't want that and I would want this. And so just having the thoughts at each point in your life, because our lives change, right? Maybe we get married, maybe we have kids, we get older. What would you want? 
And you can have that like kind of casual conversation with someone around you just to state, you know, I would never want that. I hope they don't do that when I die. Just open it up and have those conversations. Yeah. So just don't be afraid to talk about don't it. Don't be afraid yeah. to talk about it. You know, it's it doesn't mean it's going to happen. But again, what a gift to everyone around you if they know, mm-hmm. oh, she told me she would never want that, but she would want this. Or even, you know, who you'd want there and who you wouldn't want there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what an amazing conversation we've had. So thank you very much for sharing all that and amazing work you do. Tremendous work, actually. So if people wanted to find out more about you, where could our listeners find you? So my website is farewell, F-A-R-E-W-E-L-L, doula, D-O-U-L-A.com. And you can email me, Janie, J-A-N-I-E dot Racco, R-A-K-O-W, at farewelldoula.com. And you can Google my name and you'll find tons of stuff also. (laughs) Brilliant. That's amazing. Thank you, Janie. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Julianne. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to take a moment and tell you about our wellness retreats that will be happening in May 2022 in Mallorca, Spain. My team and I have created four immersive retreats that allows you to take a step back from all the stresses and strains of your daily life in order to focus on your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual well-being. From coaching mastery, mindfulness and meditation, conscious living and so much more, we offer a nurturing and truly experiential life-enriching environment where you'll reconnect, rediscover and reaffirm who you are and what you want in your life. If you're interested in learning more, head to the fullcircleglobal.com website and click the retreats tab. In the meantime, stay well, invite joy and curiosity into your life and see you soon.